Hey everyone, it is Monday, October 23rd, the start of Scorpio season, Jill. To all our Scorpios in the listening audience. What are Scorpios known for? Jill, I'm reading here, they're known for loyalty and devotion, but also passion and intense personalities. Every Zodiac description is so generic (laughs) (laughs) that you could reasonably argue I think any person (laughs) fits that mold. You could stretch some. I think some are more accurate. By the way, I should introduce the podcast first, and then we can get into our conversation. (laughs) I am Mosh Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. And I am Jill Wagner, a Gemini, and this is the place where we bring you just the facts. I am a fellow Gemini. We're the twin sign, so it makes sense that there's two of us on this podcast. Uh, this is where we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. And apparently, on this October 23rd, we dive a little deeper into the Zodiac. As I made that comment about all the Zodiac signs being so generic, I actually do think that I'm a stereotypical Gemini, for whatever it's worth. Well, it is very Gemini of you to do that because yes. Geminis are very good at arguing both sides of any argument. It's why actually there's so many Gemini journalists. I think actually like a quarter of the news, remember when I was at CBS, all had birthdays in late May, early June. It's a communication sign, etc. I don't want to go deeper here because we do like to stick the facts here. And there is a, a wide range of opinions when it comes to the Zodiac. But Jill, appreciate both sides of the argument. The Zodiac does matter. The Zodiac doesn't matter. What definitely does matter, the headlines. So let's get to it. The latest on the Hamas-Israel war as the conflict enters its third week and the U.S. military makes moves. When to expect a ground invasion on the part of Israel and the latest on the two American hostages released on Friday. Now to U.S. politics and then there were nine. No speaker yet, but nine Republicans are now in the running. To the southern border, how many known terrorists have crossed into the U.S. through Mexico? What we know about the killing of Detroit Synagogue President Samantha Wall, the future of downtowns, and no bones about it, the U.S. government not happy about some Americans who stole dinosaur bones and then sold them to China. Jill, it's quite a criminal enterprise, uh, accused criminal enterprise. We'll tell you about it at the end of the podcast. And shake it off, Taylor Swift, number one at the box office for a second week in a row. And most you have On This Day in History. Jill, it's a potpourri today in On This Day in History. We're going to go back to Brutus at 2 Brute and tell you about Britney Spears. So 2,000 years of history covered in today's On This Day. Okay, let's start in the Mideast, where Israeli warplanes continue to strike targets across Gaza. A mosque in the West Bank, where they say terrorists were planning an attack and two airports in Syria over the weekend. It comes as this two-week-old war with Hamas threatened to spiral on Sunday into a broader conflict. Israel's been firing back at the Hezbollah terror group in Lebanon since the war started, and tensions are also soaring in the West Bank territory where another 4 million Palestinians live. That is where Israeli forces have battled Hamas and Islamic Jihad and carried out two airstrikes in recent days. Israel's military spokesperson saying the country had increased airstrikes across Gaza, hitting as many targets that they can to reduce the risk to troops in the next stage of the war. That is a highly anticipated ground offensive that could come in the next few days. 
Although the U.S. and other countries are reportedly trying to get the Israelis to hold off on an invasion of Gaza, the stated goal to eliminate Hamas capabilities, but the West is hoping to have more time to get Hamas to release the 200 plus hostages, including many civilians, women, young children, the elderly, a Holocaust survivor. Meanwhile, inside Gaza, 20 trucks entered the territory where more than 2 million Palestinians live on Saturday. It was the first aid shipment into the territory since Israel imposed a complete siege two weeks ago. Israeli authorities said late Sunday that they allowed a second batch of aid into Gaza at the request of the United States. This aid includes water, food and medical supplies. Everything was inspected by Israel before it was brought into Gaza. The U.N. said Saturday's convoy carried about 4% of an average day's imports before the war and just a fraction of what is needed after 13 days of a complete siege. The Israeli military saying the humanitarian situation was, quote, under control, even as the U.N. calls for 100 trucks a day to enter. Yeah, before the war, 400 plus aid trucks would arrive daily into Gaza, and the UN, uh, the US, and a number of countries are trying to get back to near that number. Uh, The issue is, how do you build a system that enables aid to come in, but also allows the Israelis to inspect these trucks, uh, because Hamas is known to smuggle things using them, uh, sometimes steals the aid for their own purposes. And so there's an accountability function the Israelis are looking for before allowing a larger flow of aid to get in there. It does come as Gazan hospitals are packed with patients, including displaced people. They're running low on medical supplies, fuel for generators. It has forced doctors to perform surgeries with sewing needles, using vinegar as disinfectant, and without even anesthesia. The World Health Organization says at least 130 premature babies are at grave risk because of a shortage of fuel, and that seven hospitals in northern Gaza have been forced to shut down due to damage from strikes or lack of power and supplies uh, and the Israeli evacuation orders. The Israelis trying to get everyone to move from northern Gaza to southern Gaza ahead of a ground invasion. Hamas right now claims that more than 4,000 are dead in the two-week war so far, 12,000 injured. Uh, The Israelis, for their part, say that uh, some of those dead have come from misfired Hamas and Islamic Jihad rockets. The majority of the deaths are members of terror groups. Hamas says the majority are civilians. And right now, Hamas is the organization, is the government there. So they put out the final numbers uh, when it comes to Gaza. American Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Sunday that Hamas was responsible not just for the rampage in Israel, but for the death of civilians inside Gaza. He said, quote, to CBS, it knew that in Israel's necessary response, civilians would be caught in the crossfire and that with Hamas operating among the civilian population and having tunnels buried under mosques, hospitals, schools, what did they expect Israel would do? This is on Hamas, as far as the American Secretary of State is concerned. Back to the war, Israeli military officials say that Hamas infrastructure and the tunnels are concentrated in Gaza City in the north there, that five mile by eight mile area, and that the next stage of the offensive will include what they say is unprecedented use of force in the region. Israel says it wants to crush Hamas, and there's also been talk of them carving out a buffer zone around the border of Gaza that would then prevent future attacks but also, of course, prevent Palestinians from approaching the border in the future. As to the ground invasion debate, Israel says, you know, this is a huge terror group that murdered 1,400 Israelis. The Israeli people demand security. Uh, We now look weak and are inviting more attacks uh, from our enemies. 
And with this being the first successful invasion of mainland Israel, that actually held territory inside Israel. In 50 years, Israel needs to showcase its strength again. The defense minister of Israel promising to lead Israel to a decisive victory against Hamas. The West says, and you are seeing a lot of analysts, and we put out a couple on the Instagram uh, feed over the weekend, that the Palestinian civilian population will suffer in this. It already has suffered in this. Uh, become even more radicalized against Israel, preventing any long-term solution. So any short-term gain here or of an Israeli attack, the fear is this will only make a potential solution between these two peoples who all have to live side by side in an area the size of New Jersey and have been dealing with this for 80 years, that ultimately a uh, full-on ground invasion will make that even more difficult. So Jill, we included a couple of those commentaries on the Instagram account on Sunday. One example brought up by New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman is that errant Islamic Jihad rocket that hit a hospital parking lot last week, right? Initially, Hamas said it was an Israeli attack, killing 500 people, hitting a hospital, destroying a hospital. The facts would come out later. But look how much damage that did to Israel and the fact that you still have an argument across the region that it was Israel, despite the fact that the BBC, the Washington Post, the US, the UK, France, Europe, the Israelis have all shown evidence that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket. So the argument goes if that much damage is done to Israel's reputation and you see that many people hitting the streets, you know, trying to set fire to, you know, U.S. embassies and what you saw unfold just from that, a piece of misinformation, what would an actual Israeli ground invasion do and how would it impact the region and tens of millions of people? Uh, and so that is the concern among those who argue against the Israeli ground invasion. Of course, the Israelis argue they have many reasons why they need to engage in it. At the same time, you have seen the counter. Meanwhile, let's talk about the latest when it comes to hostages and the two Americans who were released on Friday. President Biden told the American mother and daughter that were released by Hamas after 13 days in captivity that he was, quote, just delighted about their freedom. And he pledged to work for the release of the other U.S. hostages. During a call on Friday, Biden told Judith Ratanan, who is 59 years old, and her daughter Natalie, who is 17, that he was so glad that they got out. He said, quote, we have been working on it a long time. We are going to get them all out, God willing. The conversation came hours after the Ratanans, who are from the Chicago area, were released by Hamas authorities to the Red Cross in Gaza. The pair were reportedly reunited with family members in Israel. So the Ranans, mother and daughter, had been staying with relatives in the kibbutz near the border with Gaza. They were there celebrating the 85th birthday for a family member when they were taken captive during that Hamas terror attack. Several members of their family were murdered. At least eight members of their family are also being held hostage at this time. Hamas said it released uh, Judith and Natalie at the request of Qatari mediators for, quote, humanitarian reasons, though it still remains unclear why they were the first hostages set free. At the same time, there's an understanding that Hamas is being told by a number of Arab countries, including the Qataris, that this is not a good look for them, holding hostages, civilian hostages. They're being compared to ISIS, uh, given the brutal murder, rape, hostage-taking of civilians, of children, of the elderly. And so the reporting out of the region is that they will focus first on releasing non-Israeli hostages. So apparently, you know, this is in line with that. Right now, they're holding more than 200 hostages alongside Islamic Jihad, which apparently has some hostages, as well as some Palestinian family gangs that came across the border. Uh, and while uh, the attack was happening, also grabbed people. So Hamas has said they don't even know all the hostages being kept in Gaza right now. Among them, at least 10 Americans, according to the State Department. Let's zoom out here, though, for a second 
focused on the U.S. right now, which increases military readiness this weekend as it's facing increasing threats in Iraq, in Syria, on U.S. assets. The Pentagon on Saturday stepped up readiness in the Middle East for what it calls recent escalations by Iran and proxy forces and said the U.S. will take appropriate action against any attempt to open a new war front. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin ordering the activation of air defense systems and notified additional forces that they will be deployed soon. He did not say how many U.S. troops will be headed to the region. It does come as the USS Dwight Eisenhower, another aircraft carrier, along with warships and fighter jets as part of that group, are moving closer to Iran. It was set to be in the Mediterranean. It's now moving over to CENTCOM and has been directed to the area near the Persian Gulf, Red Sea, and those waters. So uh, certainly right now you're continuing to see rhetoric from the Iranians, missiles from Hezbollah, missiles from the Houthis in Yemen, and a concern about U.S. assets across the region as Iran dabbles with escalating things and the U.S. is trying to stop that. All right, now to U.S. politics. We are now in the third week with no Speaker of the House. Nine Republicans have announced that they are going to run for Speaker after the party pretty much cast aside Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio as its latest nominee for the leadership post. A flood of lawmakers began campaigning just hours after Republicans voted in a closed-door meeting to restart the nomination process after Jordan failed on a third-floor vote to win the speakership last week. Just to recap, in case you have not been in, listening to this podcast or following the news for, for a while. Who hasn't been watching every single machination of this Speaker House race for the last three weeks, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> well, about three weeks ago, a very small group of Republicans voted to remove Speaker McCarthy, but they were joined by Democrats. So it was enough to oust him. Republicans then nominated Congressman Steve Scalise, who did not have enough votes and dropped out. And he was followed by Jim Jordan. And now back to the drawing board. Take a listen to CNN's Jake Tapper. He was talking to Republican Congressman Mike Turner on Sunday. I hope you don't take this personally, but do you guys have any idea how clownish you look? Well, you know, Jake, I'm, I'm very fond of saying that um, Congress is a light like high school, but even more so. So um, hopefully we'll get past this. And, um, you know, I certainly have been part of the governing majority and uh, I'm going to stay part of that and look forward to those who are on the fringes, hopefully coming together so that we can get uh, a speaker. I said that to Congressman Wilmack last week, high school, and he said that that's an insult to high school students. It's more like junior high. So some blunt words there from Jake Tapper uh, and acknowledgement from Republicans who are like, yeah, no, we look like total clowns here. Some saying we look like high schoolers. Apparently there some saying we look like junior high school students. It's an insult right now to high schoolers what the Republican <laughs> caucus is doing. OK, so there are now nine lawmakers who are vying for the job. That includes veterans of the House, committee chairman, a top member of Republican leadership, None, though, have the kind of commanding national profile normally required of the speaker, who is not only second in line to the presidency, but a key fundraiser for their party's efforts to protect and expand its majority. So they'll have to navigate the same treacherous dynamics of a bitterly divided conference that the three men before them could not, leaving some Republicans openly questioning whether anyone can win a majority of votes on the House floor. It's a good question, actually. 
But a reminder here uh, why this matters. Without a speaker, the House cannot pass crucial legislation, including funding packages. It can't avoid a government shutdown. It can't pass uh, the aid package that Biden wants right now for Israel uh, and Ukraine and the U.S. border uh, with Mexico. And you heard that tabber clip from CNN. A bunch of Republicans were out over the weekend saying this is a complete embarrassment. Kevin McCarthy was acknowledging as much. Mike McCall uh, of Texas, another Republican, was on ABC saying, I have to say, this is probably one of the most embarrassing things I've seen. And he's been in Congress for 20 years. If we don't have a Speaker of the House, we can't govern. And every day that goes by, we're essentially shut down as a government. So some of the nine, you may not have heard of any of them before, include Tom Emmer. He's actually the number three in leadership. They call him the whip. The whip position, by the way, for those unfamiliar, whip is a term for counting votes. So if you see the House Majority Whip or the House Minority Whip, it's not a literal whip, it's uh, whipping votes. So Tom Emmer is considered a leading candidate here, though he does come from the Kevin McCarthy group. So far-right Republicans are saying he's not friendly enough. Emmer hasn't been good enough to Donald Trump. We're not going to vote for him. Another one you might recognize, Byron Donalds. He's 44. He's from the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus. He's a favorite member of the party's right wing, very close to Trump. It's only his second term in Congress. He did receive some votes back during the McCarthy votes earlier this year. He is one of the few black members of the Republican Caucus, uh, and again, very close to Trump. So he has potentially his backing. Another name you might see out there is Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. He's from the very conservative group called the Republican Study Group. Uh, and that could assuage the hard right here. All that to say, with nine candidates, that shows discontent, a lack of consolidation around one candidate, and really raises questions about whether any of them can get to 217 votes again. Um, Jill, as we told you on this podcast a couple weeks ago, we will likely see the next speaker being somebody you've never heard of before, and we're headed that direction. All right, we have a lot more to get to, including today's speed read and on this day in history. But first, we want to talk to you about one of our sponsors this week, Bull and Branch Sheets. We've talked about how we only want to endorse things on this podcast that Jill and I really love. And Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets is one of those things. We've had them in our house for nearly a year. Jill, I know your clan, also a huge fan of Bull and Branch. We love them in my house. And they both work for winter and summer. They made the summer of record heat a bit easier. They're soft, breathable sheets. And so we've gone through all four seasons with them. And one of the things that makes Bull & Branch sheets uh, great is they're made with organic cotton without some of the harsh chemicals used by other brands. The sheets really do get softer with every wash. And what's great is they're offering a special deal to all of you. Um, I often hear from all of you in your DMs on Instagram that you love these sheets as well. And right now, they're offering 20% off your first order plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS at bullandbranch.com. That's bull and branch, spelled B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch, bull and branch. Promo code MONEWS. The deal is for a limited time. Exclusions do apply. So see the site for details. All right, time now for the speed read from the Washington Examiner. Some new numbers from the U.S. Border Patrol announcing this weekend that they have caught more than 172 known or suspected terrorists illegally entering the United States from Mexico or Canada over the past 12 months, finishing out the government's fiscal year with the highest number in national history. The fiscal year ends at the end of October. The figure is a huge increase from the single-digit terror watch list numbers that were seen throughout the Trump administration. The dramatic increase to double and now triple digits over the past several years has especially drawn concern from Democratic and Republican lawmakers as violence grows in the Middle East. 
of roughly 2 million arrests at the southern border between October of 2022 and September of 2023, federal law enforcement agents determined that 172 of them were on the FBI terror watch list, also known as the terrorist screening database. This database is separate from the no-fly list. It contains thousands of names of individuals who are themselves involved with a terrorist group or are related to or associated with someone involved in terrorism. So that's important context. There are 172 out of 2 million, so that is 0.008%, but still concerning because you could let one in the country and there could be a terrorist attack. This 172 figure surpasses the previous record of 98. That was in 2022, and it was 16 in 2021. So it's gone 16, 98, 172, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection data. Breaking down that 172 number, 169 occurred at the southern border, three at the U.S.-Canada border. And while more people were encountered on the borders or at air and seaports of entry, it's the people who they didn't catch uh, that concerns experts the most, especially as it's known that, you know, they're not able to arrest everyone coming across the border right now. So it certainly has a number of officials on higher alert. From the Detroit Free Press, meanwhile, amid a rise in anti-Semitic and anti-Islam incidents, Detroit police said Sunday they are still trying to figure out the motive for the slaying of Detroit Synagogue President Samantha Wall. The police chief says, quote, no evidence has surfaced suggesting that this crime was motivated by anti-Semitism. Wall was a political and community activist. She had worked on prominent political campaigns. She was stabbed multiple times, according to police, and found outside of her home Saturday morning, just east of downtown. A trail of blood led to her home where police said that they believe the crime occurred. This crime has shocked the community, and it does come amid uh, the rising tension due to what's happening in the Middle East uh, here in the U.S., the feds and local authorities are mobilizing multiple resources to solve the tragic murder here, the stabbing uh, of the synagogue president. It's include the FBI, the Michigan State Police. Right now, investigators are working to forensically analyze evidence, create a timeline of events that led to her killing on Saturday morning. They're interviewing a number of individuals with information. Uh, they did not say yet whether they have any suspects identified. But Jill, you know, I know you heard from people about this over the weekend. It just comes as uh, there's a lot of fear. You mentioned at the top uh, in the Muslim community and in the Jewish community that uh, given how tense things are in the Middle East and the war that's unfolding, that it will lead to crimes uh, and incidents here, you know, we told people last week about the the tragic uh, killing of a six-year-old Palestinian boy outside Chicago. There's been an upsurge in anti-Semitic incidents across the country. The London police, by the way, report a 1,300% increase in anti-Semitic incidents, a 200% increase in anti-Islam incidents across there in the UK. So everyone is on edge right now. And uh, this is a story that we'll continue to monitor. You know, the other thing that really struck me about this story, and and again, police trying to be really careful here and not giving a motivation, is that Wall, um, specifically, the things that people have mentioned who knew her, is that she was somebody who was working to build bridges, especially with the Muslim community, yeah. uh, with the Black community. And it reminds me in a lot of ways of a lot of the people that we heard about who were killed in Israel. A lot of the people who lived in some of those kibbutzes uh, or kibbutzim, as, as they're called, 
they were some of the biggest peace activists. Yeah. One couple had a school for uh, Israeli and Palestinian children, and I could go on and on. Uh, but that is what is particularly heartbreaking as well when you just think of the future. We, we all live here. We all have to get along in some way. Right. This tragedy, unfortunately, has decreased the number of people who were ready for compromise and working for compromise, and in some cases, literally killed those people. Okay, now to business news from the Wall Street Journal and the future of American cities. For decades, downtown office districts across the U.S. powered local economies, generating commerce, tax revenue, and an aggregation of ambition, talent, and disposable income. But many cities riddled with half-empty office buildings hope to survive the new remote work era without bulldozing swaths of downtown and starting from scratch. Good luck. Experts say American downtowns instead face the biggest urban makeover in 50 years. Even optimists estimate that it will take years and cost billions to complete the large-scale changes to usher central city office districts into a new role. Busy neighborhoods where people live, work, raise families, and find entertainment. The Wall Street Journal traveled to Minneapolis, where the city is offering tax breaks to convert offices to apartments and is considering a pedestrian-only zone. It includes food trucks and pop-up shops, and it comes as they have started to convert century-old office buildings to residential housing. Nationally, the median drop in foot traffic across 52 major U.S. city centers since 2019 was 26%. That is according to an analysis of cell phone data in June by the University of Toronto. It's literally one in four people no longer walking around uh, urban centers. And that's what those local economies depend on. They've called this the doom loop, if you've heard it, where less people are there, more people are remote working. That leads to less businesses, which leads to, you know, uh, less people going in because there's now less things to do. And so you have this doom loop. And so the closure of shops and restaurants are a real thing related to less people uh, working in offices five days a week. This could have a huge impact on economies, tax revenue. And so a number of analysts, professors related to real estate, uh, urban planning, have been studying this and warning about this. The remote work era could reduce the value of New York City office buildings and nearby retail by nearly 50% in the coming years. That could reduce city tax revenue. By 6% plus, that is significant in a city like New York. Other cities with significant numbers of office towers face similar losses. And so some cities are focused right now, how do we remake our downtown districts for the future, for this new remote work or hybrid work environment? The issue is the way that office buildings have been built, few of them can be converted to housing without a really expensive renovation. Uh, Downtowns right now don't easily accommodate family life. Crime fears right now are keeping people in the suburbs. And so right now, you know, if you're not going to be downtown, I'm not going to be downtown. And this is a huge issue. So this is requiring like a complete rethink that uh, could take decades here. Experts who analyze this in this Wall Street Journal story, which we found interesting, uh, say that this is sort of a copy of what happened in the early to mid 20th century when factories disappeared from city centers. Uh, That led to a long transformation that led to the steel and glass office towers uh, that became the main economic engine for cities. I mean, remember the whole push to the suburbs after World War II. A lot of cities dealt with issues for decades until finally there was a a remake in the 80s going into the 90s and early 2000s. One example cited in the journal story is Cincinnati which has already converted 2.4 million square feet of office space 
two apartments and created a huge ped mall. And that's the thing. They really want to think about uh, experiential things that will lead people back into the city, raise families in the city. And so you have to deal with the with the urban planning, you got to deal with the housing, you got to deal with the education. There's a lot there. I think I'm one of the few people who actually would love to go back to the city, who would do the reverse. This is big, folks. This is big. <laughs> this is straight from suburbia, Jill is reporting. Just don't tell my husband. <laughs> He's going to hear it on this podcast, Mike. We look forward to your feedback on tomorrow's pod. Oh, he knows. He knows. All right. From USA Today, the federal government has a few bones to pick with a few folks in Utah who sold dinosaur skeletons to China, like $1 million worth of bones. On Thursday, a federal grand jury returned a 13-count indictment against four people accused of selling more than a million dollars in stolen dinosaur bones taken from public lands in southeastern Utah and shipping them to China. Who do they think they are, Moshe? <laughs> we'll tell you about them. So the U.S. attorney for the District of Utah announced the indictment late last week. Trina Higgins saying in a statement, quote, by removing and processing these dinosaur bones to make consumer products for profit, tens of thousands of pounds of dinosaur bones have lost virtually all scientific value, leaving future generations unable to experience the science and wonder of these bones on federal land. The case involves about 150,000 pounds of bones. Officials say were illegally removed between March of 2018 and at least March of 2023. In addition, the four defendants are accused of causing more than $3 million in damage, including the loss of commercial and scientific value of the bones and the cost of restoring and repairing them. All right. So who are these dinosaur thieves? Well, accused here are Utah residents Vint and Donna Wade, who officials allege bought dinosaur bones removed by two unnamed people who excavated them from federal land. The Wades are 65 and 67 years old. They own a business called Wades Wooden Rocks in Moab. Uh, they resold the bones at gem and mineral shows, according to the documents. Among the people who then bought them from the Wades was a man named Stephen Willing of L.A. and his son Jordan uh, of Oregon. The Willings owned a company called JMW Sales, and they're accused of illegally exporting the dinosaur bones to China. The indictment says they mislabeled them and lowered their stated value to prevent the feds from finding them, the Wade and Willing families began working together to ship the items to China several years ago. In one example of the scam, back in April, the families labeled one shipment industrial stone, another one landscape rock, one turquoise, but the shipment actually contained dinosaur bones. All four of them, the Wades and the Willingses, have pled not guilty here. In addition to facing charges of conspiracy against the U.S., theft of U.S. property, uh, they will face prosecution for violating this is new, the Federal Paleontological Resources Preservation Act. That's a 2009 law that protects fossils and other remnants of organisms preserved in the Earth's crust. They're also charged with falsely reporting exports and money laundering. This is a big deal in Utah, Jill. More than 70% of the land there is federal land and apparently has a lot of dinosaur fossils. I feel like Ross from Friends would be very upset. Oh, livid. He was Who a paleontologist. Jill, this like- is a huge missed opportunity for friends. Uh, this would have been a great plot. <laughs> Phoebe tries to sell dinosaur fossils. Dinosaurs to China. Actually, it feels more like a Joey thing. <laughs> oh, whoops. Were you using those for something? <laughs> 
Okay, and finally from CNBC, Taylor Swift continuing to beat records at the box office. The pop star's Eras Tour concert film took in $31 million during its second weekend in theaters. The weekend figure is actually 66% lower than the first weekend, which is on par with blockbuster hits from Marvel, DC, and Star Wars. Analysts say Swifties came back in force to give Eras Tour a strong first encore weekend at the box office. The film continuing to shatter concert movie records as it brings to theaters some much-needed foot traffic during a fourth quarter impacted by Hollywood labor strikes. In total, the film has secured an estimated $129.8 million at the domestic box office. If the film passes $262 million before the end of its run in November, it will be the highest-grossing global concert movie of all time, beating 2009's Michael Jackson's This Is It. Yeah, and it comes as the concert itself, the tour, brought in more than a billion dollars. So Taylor Swift continuing uh, to do amazing things for the American economy. The uh, concert film has the widest domestic release right now. It's in more than 3,800 theaters across the country. And Taylor, by the way, was out at a Kansas City Chiefs game again over the weekend, Jill, rooting on Travis Kelsey. And Mosh, you have your finger on the pulse, as always. Apparently, this is bothering a lot of people, right? Listen, I think people are very divided on the Taylor Swift-Kelsey thing. There's a lot of people who, you know, are very into everything Taylor does. Uh, but some feel like it's a publicity stunt and haven't been loving it. I've, it's very interesting. Every time we post about it on Instagram, it's very divisive. Not as divisive as the Middle East, but like it's probably second or third after that right now. All right. Now time for On This Day in History. Jill, it's not often that we start in BC, but we will. On this day in the year 42, before the Common Era, Marcus Junius Brutus at Tu Brute, the leading conspirator in the assassination of Julius Caesar, dies by suicide after his defeat at a major battle. Many people don't follow up on what happens to Brutus after Caesar's death. Well, that's why you listen to this podcast. So Brutus had joined the plot against the dictator, Caesar, believing he was striking a blow for the restoration of the Roman Republic uh, with the famous phrase, et tu Brute, and you Brute. Well, Caesar is assassinated, and the Roman Republic is not saved. It actually leads to a huge civil war in Rome between the forces of Brutus and Cassius against Octavian and Mark Antony. Well, this war continues, does not go well for Brutus and Cassius, and so Brutus takes his own life a couple years later due to uh, the defeat. The Roman Republic, though, would be lost forever, as Octavian would become Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome. And that is how there is no longer a Roman Republic. So an attempt to save it by killing Caesar turns out to create a permanent dictatorship, a warning to all of us. Because there's often, Jill, you know, the whole trend recently, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Well, today, you all thought about it. So, Jack. <laughs> this will be my only time this week. I could promise you that. <laughs> Jill, we got four more on this day. So you just wait for it. All right, fast forward. Tough turn. On this day in 1941, the animated classic by Disney, Dumbo, had its world premiere. On this day in 2001, Apple released the iPod, the portable media player that became one of the most successful and revolutionary products of the early 2000s. Jill, I imagine you had a couple of them. I did. I had a mini. I had one of the bigger ones. And I feel like they're still in my draw somewhere. Yeah, you save Apple boxes for no reason. You save Apple products for no reason. I look back. I have a whole box of electronics that literally are probably at this point close to 20 years old. I think I finally threw away a Palm Pilot. Remember the Palm Pilot? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Recently, during a move, I'm like, why am I keeping this? What am I going to do with it? I haven't needed this since probably the second semester of you know my freshman year of college. All right, so we celebrate the iPod today, revolutionizing things 22 years ago. Uh, and we'll end here with a bit of pop culture news. On this day, 45 years ago... Gloria Gaynor releases her big disco hit, I Will Survive. All right, turning 41 years old today, Billy Idol's White Wedding. There is something about this song that just (laughs) rubs me the wrong way. All right, we will move on quickly from Billy Idol here and end with this. It gives me a headache. I can't explain. White Wedding. All right, uh, and we'll end here with this. Turning 25 today, baby, one more time. Now, this does not give me a headache. <laughs> a little Britney Spears from, from my college days, I'll take it. Yes, this Britney Spears' baby, one more time, walking down the aisles of uh, high school there. Everyone knows that music video, iconic music video. And that's, I think, how we all like to remember Britney, Jill. What happened with her recently? Like, she's she's coming out with a book, right? She's There's a whole bunch of revelations. We probably should do it in the speed read at some point this week um, on her various allegations. Totally. Like a wrap of the Britney headlines. We have not covered Britney in a while. Actually, if you search Britney Spears right now on Google, she uh, right now is defending the nude uh, selfies that she posts on social media. So it's been quite a quite a journey for Britney. You know what it is? Because individually, like all this news is trickling out and individually it's not really big enough to cover. But I do think a big rap would work. I feel like if we didn't have a war in the Middle East to cover, we probably would have done the Britney memoir. Right, right. I feel like that's been dominating our attention. And so listen, rest assured, we here at the Mo News Podcast, we'll get to that this week. Okay, but that is a wrap on the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And thanks to all of you who are joining Mo News Premium. Hundreds have joined in the past two weeks. It's where we're doing deep dives right now on all things Middle East and your other questions uh, about the news. By joining Mo News Premium, you support what we're doing here with this daily podcast, daily newsletter, the Instagram account. You can do it right now over at mo.news slash premium. It gives you the good feeling knowing you're supporting independent news, but also you get access to a members-only Instagram account and members-only podcast. Again, mo.news slash premium. Okay, bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.